Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. around the world are flocking to the island nation of Krakoa to be part of the first mutant society, but a new nation means new threats. The new nation of Krakoa offers a promise of peace to mutant kind, but peace has been hard to come by. Apocalypse has declared his intentions to harness mutant magic, but not everyone is convinced, especially since his experimentation seems to put Rogue into a mysterious floral coma. And wore another one called Brian Braddock into battle against the sorceress Morgan Le Fay, but when she possessed Brian, he used the last of his strength to bestow upon Betsy the mantle of Captain Britain. Now to get Brian back, Captain Britain, Gambit, Jubilee have entered other world where anything can happen. The Hellfire Trading Company, responsible for distributing Krakoa's pharmaceuticals to friendly nations and smuggling mutants out of unfriendly ones, just added a third leader to its organization, Red Queen Kate Pride, captain of the Marauder. Black King Sebastian Shaw had very different plans for the proposition, which is propagation. I can't even. I'm just... So much happens every week, which of course means this is We Are Krakoa. I'm Nico. I'm Jonah. I'm Dylan. And I'm Kyle. And we hope you survive the experience. It was an experience this week, whether it was the actual issues themselves or it was like the news about what's going going on. I am so excited because this episode drops just after the House and Powers hardcover finally comes out. When this thing was solicited, I think it was originally like $40 and then it became like $50 and now it's like $60 and the page count kept going up and I'm really excited because I don't want to touch my House and Powers ever again. I mean, I predominantly read through the digital edition anymore anyway, but it's not just some big news with House and Powers coming out in hardcover this week. Marvel has made it very clear their intentions to treat X-Men as a line going forward. And I'm kind of excited about the possibility and ramifications. The first six issues of each series of the Dawn of X will also be collected in a Dawn of X trade volume series. So, six months from now, you'll be able to have picked up issues one through six of X-Men in the form of the X-Men volume one, one to six trade, or you'll be able to get each one of them in the Dawn of X volumes. Dawn of X volume one sees the first issue of each of the relaunch series, Dawn of X volume two, the second, volume three, the third, and so on and so forth. So, so we're really seeing them treat this as almost an anthology title in a way. I'm really excited because that's reflected in how John Hickman has been cycling his cast. And I think we saw that as well this month in Marauders. Guys, I don't know that I've ever seen comic books collected this way. I'm intrigued. I don't really know how it's going to play with the fans, to be honest. Part of me really likes the idea that I can pick and choose which stories that I want, or I can get the whole package, but at the same time I'm wondering if it may be flooding the market with the same stories over and over. I completely agree! I don't think we need that many versions, but, I mean, there has to be people for whom each version is more attractive. I, myself, would definitely want the Dawn of X volumes, not the individual series volumes. Jonah, Dawn of X or individual series volumes? I would prefer the individual issues, and not that I'm not enjoying every single title that's being covered, but there might be times where an individual doesn't want to read all the stories. 
they might not be interested in a title because they don't like the cast, they don't care for the, the name, wherever they're going with it, and I don't think it would be fully fair to completely disregard a customer wanting individual stories as opposed to forcing them to buy a collection uh, that includes stories they may not want. Dylan, I know you prefer reading your comics with physical copies. Would you prefer if you had the one book that contained all your stories, or do you like collecting those individual issues? I like collecting the trades, and if I were someone that was collecting these in just trade and not individual forms, my answer on this is kind of hard. If I was buying the trades even after getting the single issues, I would want the Dawn of X ones too, because for me, especially with this relaunch by Hickman, I feel like even if there is a book that I don't like, even though I like them all, they all go hand in hand. There's little bits and pieces here or there that tie into each other, so I think it's a great idea to have issue ones all together and issue twos all together because it just makes sense. But I do understand there is fans out there that just don't like certain characters or don't like certain books. I know in my Facebook group when this news came out this past week, it was kind of 50-50. There's a lot of fans that don't care for certain titles like Fallen Angels and they don't really want to read it. So they made comments about how they would not want to get a trade that had that in it because it felt like they were being forced to read a title that they don't care for. So my answer is I would love to get the trades with all the ones and twos together, but I understand why some people would not care for that. And speaking of things that some people do not care for, this discussion of Fallen <laughs> Angels, really interesting. So this team stands that book, like, insanely hard. We even think that we should probably be together. And I loved reading Fallen Angels. It turns out Joey didn't love it as much when I talked to him about it. And Dylan, hearing you say that some fans have enjoyed it. Knowing that the writer has already said that the story will continue in a different form, we kind of got our first taste of that this week. There's a title that's hitting in March, and I'm not sure how people are going to react. It's This seems like, I mean, I'm excited for half of it and dreading the other half. Yeah, this past week, it was announced, like you said, Zeb Wells is getting a new Dawn of X title, and the artist that will be working with him is Steven Segovia. The new title that was announced this week is Hellions. It's a book that seems like it's going to be its own version of Suicide Squad in a way. It has fan-favorite X-Men characters, Havoc, and the new Quanon Psylocke. So that is that ties in with what's going to be going on with her after Fallen Angels. The rest of the team consists of Mr. Sinister, Wild Child, Nanny, Orphan Maker, Empath, and Scalp Hunter. It is a weird grouping of characters who are all mostly X-Men villains, and I am not really fond of this team. I like like, I love Scalp Hunter. He's one of my favorite marauders of all time. I really love Scalp Hunter. I love Mr. Sinister. He's one of my favorite marauders of all time. Hmm. I like Wild Child, who is deeply connected to Sabretooth, who's one of my favorite marauders of all time. Wait a minute. <laughs> I have a question. Why isn't this book just called Marauder? And that's what happens when you borrow your own legacy titles. Emma Frost took over Marauders, which was a Mr. Sinister book, and now Mr. Sinister is taking over a Hellion's title, which was an Emma Frost book. From one pale ass to another. I love it. That's... And they both love diamonds. Oh my god. I love this. Jonah, that was fucking <laughs> incredible. Jonah, you get a dazzling beauty for that. That was amazing. Wow. I love that parallel because it highlights everything that Storm was trying to say about not loving 
loving what Kate was doing by using that title. Not to mention, Jonah, that brings me immediately back to your point about Kate's problematic drinking and sort of reminds me of Dylan, one of your favorite books, when Logan took on the term X-Force because it was time to bring up that ideology again. Kyle, you are not a guy who is super about that villain culture. Not at all. So I have to wonder, is this the first Dawn of X title where you're like Dawn of Next? Yeah, I am kind of feeling that way. I'd still like to give it a try, but I'm not sure what my level of connection to it will be. I like a good villain story. I guess it's just, I don't know any of these characters at all. Like, literally at all. This point of reading Uncanny X-Men over on 80s Mutant Mania, Havoc hasn't gotten a lot of panel time. He's kind of just been a very much background character. He's only been in a handful of issues. And he's not prominently featured in the current Dawn of X. And that's the only character I really recognize by name and I know enough about. That being said, I'm willing to give it a shot and to see what they're trying to do with it, but I'm also not holding expectations and I'm prepared for it to go south if it does. You know, I'm ready for that ride. The cover art for Billions number one that features all of those characters, Wild Child appears to look like the Wild Child that we saw in the Age of Apocalypse storylines. Yeah, when he was the pup to Sabretooth. But yeah, that's where I immediately got that Sabretooth comparison. And the reason I'm mentioning it is because I know so far with lots of issues in House of X and a few of the Dawn of X titles, Hickman is really hitting on some really important parts of X-Men history and Age of Apocalypse, even if some people who are a part of this panel don't like it. Age of Apocalypse was very important. And I feel like this might actually be the Age of Apocalypse wild child that Hickman is bringing into the normal 616. Okay, let's back up a second. It's not that I don't like the Age of Apocalypse. It's that I feel Days of Future Past said just as much about dystopian parallels in two issues as Age of Apocalypse accomplished in 40. That's really it. It's just that I think Age of Apocalypse is representative of a time where the notion was excess equals correctness. It's that there was a period in time where the only way we could make better technology was to use bigger parts. And the only way we could have a TV that fucking good was if it was that fucking big and culture was about excess you know it shouldn't escape anyone's notice that there is this idea that largeness equals superiority and you don't have to think very hard i mean there's a direct connection not to be that guy but think about how many boxes of magnum condoms are on the shelf that are allotted there's this idea that if you reach for that you're superior because this idea that largeness equals better and sometimes people reach for that gold box that definitely don't need it And when that's the case, what you're essentially saying is, I can stretch this out and fill this out. I mean, this is a weird allegory, but like, (laughs) I just don't think that what they pitched with Age of Apocalypse had 40 issues to say. And what it did say, I don't think it said in any way that hadn't already been accomplished before. The idea that Kitty would wind up with Pete. Yeah, that was literally Days of Future Past. The idea that Logan could be lost to 
to the berserker of his time in a government facility that's Weapon X. And then they even called the goddamn thing Weapon X. It's not that I don't like Age of Apocalypse. It's that it is representative of a time where the focus was on Flash, not Function. And I'm a Function, not Flash guy. It's actually why I love Dazzler, I think. It was really funny, maybe, even. Like, Dazzler is so consistently shit on because she's that dumb disco bitch. But, like, no, actually, if you think about it, Dazzler is a survivor. She is a versatile character who has overcome bizarre odds. And she's actually so much richer than just being a Christmas tree topper. And, okay, whether it's Dazzler or Magnum Condoms, Age of Apocalypse just was... Age of Apocalypse was Jabba the Hutt. And so X-Men number three by John Hickman and... So X-Men number three by John Hickman and Lionel Francis Yu is such a phenomenal example of the multifaceted approach that John Hickman knows how to take with a book. It's actually why I think this rotating perspective on the titles in that Dawn of X trade line makes a lot of sense because I actually don't feel like John Hickman is telling like a singular narrative in X-Men. Now, I thought the first few pages, the colors, the visuals were beautiful. And once I saw Kurt, I knew that this was going to be the book for Jonah. But I I found myself in a weird place where like I started typing a message to Jonah and then I put my phone down and I decided to finish the scene and come back to it a moment later. But that's sequence between Gene and Emma, especially contrasted with the fact that that is some of his lightest inking in the entire issue, and some of the boldest colors in the issue, it creates an idea that there is levity. I believe that this actually is a moment between two women being funny, being friends. It actually warmed my heart by the end, and that little that little exchange where Gene says, you're paying, and Emma says, I always do. It was everything I could have dreamt of getting between these two beautiful women I love so much and Jonah getting to share this with you was like everything to me tell me how did you feel about the dazzling divas battling with barbs before settling up sweetly I am a proponent of a healthy rivalry between Jean and Emma it's been established for a very long time and it's a relationship that I want to be handled very delicately I remember Nico messaging me it was really like that moment of them getting bitchy with one another and it's that idea of like you're like are they really putting this in the book why would they do that like these characters and then they're having just you know, a rivalry moment. It was so beautiful and amazing because that's the frenemy friendship I want between those two. It's, I don't need them to be best friends, you know? They have really damaged one another, and I don't know how how much... <laughs> they have really damaged one another. I love uh, that. They, well, <laughs> we'll go into all the details of what they've done, because I'm sure enough we'll cover it within the coming years. But I really, really did appreciate them, that moment, because it was just so nice to be able to see them be able to be friends and be able to work together and to, you know, maybe share Scott. <laughs> Dylan, if there is one thing I've enjoyed bringing to your life, it is maybe softening your heart a little bit on some of my favorites. I know we're a little ahead on recording, and the next season of 80s Mutant Mania, which kicks off in the new year, is going to feature some surprise admissions of character acceptance on your part. But I do feel like this subtle acceptance of Jean on Emma's behalf kind of echoes your own, I don't know, trying harder to like Jean. <laughs> 
I can't with you. I will say that since House of X, this gene is a little more tolerable. I am liking this gene, and I'm very much liking Jean and Emma liking each other. And they have done a lot to each other that, like Jonah said, I'm sure we'll be talking about soon. I'm looking forward to more Jean and Emma like this. So I hope Hickman keeps that going in the future. Speaking of the future, Hickman is so completely about future ideas and planting seeds for the future. He is a guy who thinks 10 steps ahead. And, you know, I'll say this much, there's nothing like horticulture in X-Men's history. What did you call me? <laughs> oh my god, this, can we title this episode talking about the X-Men versus the Golden Girls? <laughs> I mean, it really I, it was. It was some sort of like X-Men, like, it was kind of like a best of that foursome, right? If you take a look at a lot of like the most classic sitcoms of all time, it's sort of that foursome where there's the slutty one, the funny one, the smart one, and the mean one, whether it's Golden Girls, Designing Women, Will and Grace, that foursome I idea is a very pervasive thing, especially when it comes to fiction about women, because for so many years women were pigeonholed into categories. Emphasis on cat. How <laughs> it's so fucking amazing how John Hickman is able to take that trope, that tropey trope trope of these like, oh, they're these old ladies, but like, they're badass super ladies wearing plague corvid masks. Kyle, you're someone who appreciates when a writer can provide a unique perspective, and I think between Lionel Francis used gorgeous pencil work, we're just gonna keep pushing that Lionel Francis Hugh is like one of the most talented artists of all time. Between his gorgeous work and battling old lady environment plague doctors. I was completely thrown for a loop with this. I wasn't expecting yet another incursion on Cohen's space so soon after uh, the Reavers had infiltrated and killed Xavier. Yeah, I can't keep up with the Krakoan encroachment. And the fact, yeah, and the fact that these these women who have lived their lives trying to save the planet and have become radicalized by corporate America, effectively, to the point where they're willing to go out and attack people in order to further their goals, it's just, I wasn't expecting it at all. I did not think that the bad guys of this arc would be HERFs, which of course stands for Human Exclusion radical feminists. Dylan, this is the weirdest version of the sisterhood I've come across. <laughs> the sisterhood of the traveling colossus back. Oh! You're welcome. <laughs> it is a really interesting group of people that they had encroaching on Krakoa, but I, even though I called them the Golden Girls, it is a really interesting, uh, God, I don't know what word I want to use, a really interesting way to introduce that now that the X-Men have this Krakoa nation and these portals all over the world, they might be opening themselves up for even more turmoil than what the X-Men have had before. Because now they are encroaching on an entire planet, not just the supervillains that they fight or villains in New York or villains in California. You're encroaching on an entire planet. So you're going to have villains that are just for old ladies or something else. I think it's an, a really interesting way of Hickman showing that now the X-Men might actually have more villains than they ever have before. And they're such interesting villains. The fact that they can like just sit down and talk with these ladies and it's the extent of work that Hickman puts into everything he does. They all have names and ages and relationships. We have Augusta Bromes, Opal Vetiver, Lily Lamus, and Edith Scutch. I kind of want to put these names 
comes into some sort of anagram thing and find out if they're all just like, ha ha ha, old ladies or something, you know what I mean? But like, <laughs> I really loved the art on this issue and know that Lionel Francis used art can be a little tricky for people. People have a really strong reaction to things like the amount of line work on Sebastian Shaw's face on page 16 of the issue. Can I just point out how amazing the art is during the interaction where the horticulture ladies pretty much call out Emma on the way that she dresses? (laughs) And... Oh my god, and the fact that Sebastian Shaw is, is just laughing, giggling away. <laughs> my first time working, my first time working with Lionel Francis Yu, good night! My first time <laughs> reading Lionel Francis Yu was Wolverine with Claremont, and it was a Claremont vs. Sabretooth, that rematch that fans got to vote on, and I love this guy's art. I just always think it's so super duper gorgeous. I actually see some similarities between his Nightcrawler and Jay Lee's Nightcrawler. Jonah, you recently had a tremendous piece commission between Nightcrawler and Spider-Man by Jay Lee. And I actually think there's some really cool parallels between Lionel Francis, you and Jay Lee's Nightcrawler. Yes, I do see what you're talking about, Nico. It's a very distinct way to draw Nightcrawler. I actually really love the way he does draw him. It's a good mix of, you know, a much more older, gruffer-looking Kurt as opposed to Dave Cockrum or John Burns version of earlier Nightcrawler, but I really do appreciate how just gruff and more just mature and adult-looking he's coming across. I understand the some fans that might not like Francis Hughes' art. I absolutely love his art, but I do feel that he is is a an artist that is very particular to certain stories. I feel like this kind of art couldn't be on New Mutants or Marauders, uh, or especially Marauders. I feel like certain seriousness is in Francis's art. I mean, despite the funny panel with Sebastian laughing about Emma, I feel like the art is more set to tone for this book, the flagship X-Men book that needs to have a more serious demeanor. So I think Francis Yu's art for X-Men is perfect. Moving on from the Bitter Old Lady Brigade to a political subterfuge <laughs> with Sebastian Shaw featuring his son that I never knew he had. This book mainly focused on Sebastian Shaw trying to convince his son to join him and be his Black Bishop, originally being the Red King, but Emma already beat him to that. Shinobi is a really, I guess, weird character. He was first, just a quick history lesson if you've never seen this character, which I would assume quite a few people haven't. He was first introduced in X Factor number six by Chris Claremont, and his original intention was to take down his father to then overthrow the Hellfire Club. So before I read his background, I originally thought, oh, he's just a villain's child who wants to do good. No, he is also evil. And from what I've read about his background, Shinobi Shaw hasn't been seen since about 2005, so this is his first appearance in a very long time. I want to ask you, Dylan, do you have experience reading Shinobi before? Do you think he's an interesting character? How do you think his introduction to being the the Black Bishop will affect the book. Shinobi is a character that I have never really cared that much about. He is a bit interesting with the fact that, the, of course, 
father-son hate that he has. He, he's very much his son's father because he thinks just like him and he wants to outdo his father. It is interesting to have him back now that Sebastian is a very important member of the Krakoan Council. The lies that Sebastian has told Shinobi in this issue are very interesting as well because just like any story, everyone has to know that these lies are going to come to fruition and Shinobi's going to learn that his father is just playing him to one-up Emma and the rest of the council. Yes, and I think that's something that if you didn't know much about Sebastian Shaw, it doesn't come across that way on a first read. On my first initial reading of Marauders 3, it came across that, oh, Sebastian actually kind of cares for his son. Yes, he's still doing the Sebastian thing of doing whatever he needs to do to get himself ahead, because Sebastian only cares about Sebastian. He doesn't even care about the other Shaw. But it's really interesting to think about what's going to bite Sebastian in the ass. Also, what we saw in this issue was who Kitty wanted as her Red Bishop. We saw some text messages between Kate and Bishop, and she literally stated, your name is actually Bishop. This role was meant for you. And he said, no, I don't look good in red. Because that's what he's concerned about. Kyle, would was Bishop your first guess for Kitty's Bishop, who she wants to work under her in the Hellfire Club? Or did you think it would be someone different? And do you think Bishop is going to accept this position eventually? Or do you think she's going to have to ask someone else? I was kind of split between Bishop and Iceman. Um, I really do think that Bishop would be the obvious choice because of his name. But at the same time, I feel like Kate and Bobby's connection would work really well together, uh, having him in the vision, so I don't know. I get that. I think through seeing Bobby kind of get a better spotlight than I've ever seen him in, in Marauders, I do think it would make a pretty interesting choice. There's a lot of different characters that either I feel like we're going to be expecting to be with them or not, and I am excited to see where they want to go with that. At the very end of the book, Sebastian plants the seed in Shinobi that the White Queen and the Red Queen conspired to have him killed. Now- I'm sorry, I just need to jump in. Haven't we talked enough about seed lately? <laughs> Sebastian planted this, the idea in Shinobi's head that Kate and Emma are conspiring to have him killed. Sebastian's not the most truthful, and Sebastian has also killed his son before. He was only brought back by Celine, and then doesn't know if he was killed or not. Nico, while Sebastian has been known to lie and has killed his son, do you think that he's telling the truth that it's Emma and Kitty who killed Shinobi? Do you think Sebastian is lying to cover his own ass because he did it? Or do you think there's a third party involved? Because we do know that Shinobi is involved with what looks like the Japanese mafia, so it could have been them. There are a lot of different possibilities. Where do you think that case of who done it is going to go? One of the things that makes for a better story is understanding how to manipulate red herrings. I think there's a lot of fun when you can play along and guess the killer. But there's also a lot of fun when you're kind of taken off guard by something. So you really need to have the right mix of choreographing things and falling off the stage. And I would like it very much if it is ultimately revealed that they did in fact kill Shinobi Shaw. And that's why Kitty's drinking because she's having a hard time coping with it. And that's why Emma's being so nice to Kitty because she feels guilty for asking her to have done this, but <laughs> and hear me out. I would love it if they did it at Sebastian's insistence. <laughs> we learned in this issue that when it comes to Krakoa and its needing energy, the X-Men have to sacrifice two mutants every year to make sure that Krakoa stays stable, and I thought that was a very interesting little tidbit to throw in on the information pages, so it'll be interesting 
when we get to see that play out in at least a panel or two. I just need a background panel of someone getting thrown into like a volcano. So to clarify that a little bit, they said that normally Krakoa would need to have a sacrifice of two mutants in order to keep its uh, land mass the same. But due to the number of mutants that are living on Krakoa at the moment, they all split the amount of psychic energy that they're giving to him, so it doesn't really affect them. Which would explain why in Expo number three, a lot of the psychics are going... Well, part of why a lot of the psychic are having a psychic headache because of Krakoa, because he's crying and the only person who can talk to him is in outer space, because again, that was allowed. <laughs> yeah, that was... <laughs> I'm really glad that that came up. That was something that we hit right away. We said that was bizarre. They made a lot of weird choices and we called them <laughs> out on it. And it, I'm telling you, they're listening to us. <laughs> I mean, they did steal my Facebook group name. My other theory is that Shinobi committed suicide. If you don't know Shinobi's power set, because he also is a mutant, he's able to change the molecular density of his atoms, so he can become very hard, so much like Emma's diamond form, he can become intangible. It's very possible he was intangible at some point, and he stuck his hand through his head, and that's how he died, which is why it's not fully explicit that Kate killed him, because it is possible that Shinobi killed himself, or someone controlled Shinobi to do it. Again, just some food for thought. We go from our family intrigue story to what I felt was kind of the more emotional book of the week. Excalibur 3 explored not only Richter's dealings with being left out of Krakoa and Betsy's trying to rescue Brian, but also introduced some characters that I personally am not familiar with. So, Jonah, you and I, when we discussed Excalibur last, we both seemed concerned about the team makeup of this book. Now that everybody's kind of splitting up into their own groups and we're starting to see other characters coming in, how do you feel about where these characters stand in the Excalibur team? I'm still in a weird place for two characters of... Actually, no. I'm in a weird place for Jubilee because I don't quite understand where she's going to be taken with her story. A lot of what I saw, at least in this issue, is that she's worried about being a mom, and she's just worried about Shogo, and she doesn't want Shogo to get hurt, even though he's this cool, adorable, amazing dragon. Uh, hello? That's amazing. She doesn't seem to have much more than that to her character right now, and I'm really concerned that they're shoehorning into motherhood. While I don't not want to see characters become parents, I need a little bit more characterization from them. Richter and Apocalypse are going to form this really cool bond and I'm really excited to see where those two characters are going to go when they enter the other world and we said this for the last issue but I still think this was the Bretzy Braddock show starring some other characters but it was really beautiful characterization for Betsy her leading her head against Shogo and saying do good for purple protect yourself I thought that was so sweet Betsy and Brian having to fight 
fight one another and Betsy having to leave him was just so heartbreaking and I know it was a really tough moment for Nico to read because those are two of his favorite characters. I'm overall feeling a little bit better about the team but I'm still really unsure of Jubilee's place. I'm still unsure of how Rogue is going to fit into this because they still have her fridge and Gambit can't seem to get a hold of himself until Rogue is around. So I'm still concerned but I feel a little better about it. Okay, yeah, I totally feel pretty much the same way myself. I really feel that Jubilee's purpose in this book was to get us Shogo the Dragon. And I need more from Gambit at this point, other than him just complaining that Rogue is fridged. So I'm hoping that they flesh those two out a little bit more in the future. Uh, Dylan, with regards to Richter, we see him dealing with... With a lot of depression because he's no longer able to control his powers and Apocalypse kind of comes to his rescue. So do you see that as something that you would expect Apocalypse to do with regards to other mutants? Is a really interesting question and my answer is yes but not in this sense. There's a part of me that is still, probably just like every other X-Man, there's a part of me that is still a little fuzzy on whether we should trust Apocalypse. Of course Apocalypse would come to a mutant's aid if they are someone that could benefit him. In a way, it kind of seemed like it is. Before we see Apocalypse go to Richter's aid, we see that he's having some issues with some of his crystals and magic and everything that he's doing on Krakoa. But Krakoa is a landmass, and of course Apocalypse would go find a mutant whose powers deal with the Earth. I feel like he's going to make Richter feel like he's helping him, but I think there's a devious plot or plan that Apocalypse might have in place. I do want to say Richter is one of my kind of favorite characters, probably up there in like my top 25 or something. I kind of hate the way that he's been introduced in this. I'm about 50-50. I love the fact that Richter's powers might be acting weird because of Krakoa and it'll just be a very important aspect for Richter. Like we mentioned in some previous issues, it seems like all the teams have a character that is kind of tethered to the earth in some way, just like Black Tom in X-Force. So I'm glad that this is going to give Richter a bit of a story, but Richter being in I don't know. The Low of Lows is a song that Richter knows how to sing over and over again in lots of different series that he's been in. And I just kind of wish there was a better way that he could be a star without being someone who's down in the dumps. Yeah, having that kind of story arc repeat itself over the years, that can definitely be frustrating to see. And not having character growth out of it can be frustrating. But at the same time, I can see it as something that happens in real life. I mean, depression isn't something that can just go away forever. So it's interesting being able to see that play itself again over and over for some somebody instead of them being magically cured. So the book ends with a character that I have absolutely no experience with. I don't know who this character is at all, but I have heard you 
guys talk about him over and over again. So, Nico, with the appearance of Pete Wisdom, how do you see this affecting the story? Do you see any kind of implications to Apocalypse being in the lighthouse, to Betsy now being Captain Britain and the Queen needing her instead of Brian? Part of what's really interesting, Betsy and Pete don't get along. They've met. They're not fans of each other. And so I'm eager to see how this story all shakes out. When you bring up Pete Wisdom, he carries with him a really unique distinction. Pete Wisdom, for those of you who aren't familiar, is a character that was introduced by Warren Ellis. Essentially, Warren Ellis in the 90s was like, hi, can I have Wolverine? And they were like, no. And he was like, oh, can I insert myself in as Wolverine? And they were like, okay. And they gave him Pete Wisdom. In case you're not sure how he is Wolverine. He was part of a British secret agency called Black Air, which used people with special abilities as secret agents. His sister is also a member of Black Air, and he has ex-girlfriends also trying to kill him. He has claws made of energy that extend out of his fingertips called the Hot Knives, and he banged Kitty Pride for a while. That's pretty much Pete Wisdom, and now he's, I guess the best way to put it, is Brian's personal assistant. New Excalibur was a turning point in their relationship. Pete Wisdom does his best supporting a hero. This is a really weird reference, but Pete Wisdom is the Leo McGarry to Brian Braddock's Jed Bartlett, and it seems to me like everybody didn't watch a lot of West Wing. So, essentially, Pete Wisdom represents a believer. Pete Wisdom under Warren Ellis definitely kind of didn't get this whole magic thing, and over the years, Pete Wisdom has become a believer. I would really ultimately, and this is kind of like some Captain Britain canon here for a minute, but if I can have anything I want. I would have Opal Luna Saturnine take over the position of like Merlin Roma, right? And I would put Brian in as Majestor of the Omniversal Matrix, and I would give him Pete Wisdom and Sage as like his counselor chancellors, and I would keep Betsy in the Captain Britain costume. So what does Pete Wisdom represent to me? He represents a genuine connection to some early Excalibur that isn't the most classic Excalibur. He represents a passion I have for one of my favorite characters, and to me, he is one of the most important parts of the non-Claremont elements of the Excalibur mythos. And he's the love of my life, and I love him. The moment when Betsy was trying to get through to Brian, and she started listing all the important people in his life, but the only person that seemed to get through to him was Jamie. Does that surprise anybody? So, I love Jamie, and it's kind of weird because when you think about Captain Britain canon, you have to take into consideration a couple of major things. Captain Britain being based out of the UK and only occasionally showing up in the US until he became a US character and then only occasionally showed up in the UK meant that elements of his character kind of bounced back and forth. Alan Davis and Alan Moore created a storyline called The Crooked World and The Jasper's Warp and if you're a Captain Britain fan, The Jasper's Warp and The Crooked World is considered like the high point of the art, right? And it's like, you know, in so many ways, Alan Moore is like Hieronymus Bosch and... This, you know, the crooked world is a triptych and people just stare at it. And it's this incredible story. And I love Mad Jim Jaspers as a villain. I feel like it was super influential on me. And it was something Alan Moore was very protective of. So Claremont wrote Mad Jim Jaspers into X-Men 200 as James Jaspers. Meaning, because uh, the version we meet from Captain Britain 
is an alternate universe version. So Claremont introduced our this universe version and Mr. Moore did not care for that. And so then it never came to pass. But out of nowhere, uh, I guess 20 issues into Excalibur, here comes Jamie with all of Mad Jim's powers. And he represents chaos in the face of order. If you look at them, even the classic stuff, and you know, I don't think Claremont and Herb Trimp meant this in 1975, but if you look at them, Jamie is kind of long and skinny and scraggly. And you know, when they describe Brian as a ladies' man, he's really dedicated to Courtney and he's suave and he's sexy and he's jacked and he's hot, but he's this classic good boy. Whereas I'm pretty pretty sure that at this point anything Jamie has is penicillin resistant and that's what it is. So Jamie represents a sense of freedom that Brian could never be. If Brian is a very British version of Cyclops, then Jamie is a very British version of Wolverine. And the idea that Jamie could get through to Brian speaks to me on several levels. As a child, Brian idolized Jamie, as did Betsy. They both idolized him and Betsy and Brian were best friends and inseparable. So it's not necessarily that Betsy wouldn't have that connection because if you ever want to read some really great stuff, the Alan Davis Excalibur has some gorgeous moments between Brian and Betsy. But for my sake, the bigger thing is if Jamie Braddock is in this reality, we are all fucked. I mean, like when I think about reality altering mutants that are way too powerful, it's Jamie Braddock, it's Colossus's older brother, Mikhail, and it's the Scarlet Witch. They're the three mutants who can do essentially anything with a thought. Jamie literally understands reality as a series of quantum strings he can adjust. He cuts them and then reties them. He lengthens one. He pulls on them. He ties them to other things. He tangles them up. That's terrifying. <laughs> I would say these books were fairly fascinating, and I think these all were a lot of setup. As opposed to moving the story along, they were giving us a foundation for where they're going to take the story next. X-Men 3 introduced us to the new villain of the book, though we still have no idea what the humans are up to that are not the early bird specialists. We also had a marauder set up uh, with Sebastian <laughs> and his son, in who he named his Black Bishop, as well as trying to manipulate him and those around him. And Excalibur set up Pete Wisdom, Richter, and a Hold on, guys. Wait, hold on. Wait, this just in. This just in. It is It is official. We have a record. Jonah has won two Dazzling Muties this episode. It is a record. Jonah, congratulations <laughs> on your second Dazzling Mutie this episode. I'd like to thank me and only me and the Academy that voted for me because it's not rigged in any way, I promise. Starting in the new year, Mutant Mondays will now be We Are Krakoa and our Thursday time slot will be Throwback Thursday where we take a look at the 80s Mutant Mania and anything from the past to help us catch up to the current day. Kyle, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Francis82. How about you, Dylan? Everybody can find me on Facebook at my X-Men group that is titled House of X, or you can find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Jonah, where can everybody find you? Telling Emma Frost that she looks like a slut. <laughs> oh my gosh. She really does always pay. Jesus Christ. Or you can find you can find myself being an S-word on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubin. Oh, I lied. At Peak Jonah. That is P-E-A-K-J-O-N-A-H. Nico, where can everybody find you? You guys can find me all over this amazing network. We have some amazing and exciting events coming up in the next few 
weeks, we have some super cool appearances on this channel, whether it's the continuation and finale of our Danger Room files, highlighting the different eras of X-Men throughout the years, getting everybody caught up on everything they need to know for Dawn of X, where we kick off our new season in January of 80s Mutemania. We'll be coming back in with God Loves Man Kills. The season premiere features all four of us here, so special guest Kyle, it's a lot of fun, and including a an interview with world-famous cosplayer advocate, the editor on the Adventure Zone graphic novel, Jay Justice, talking about diversity, inclusion. It's a terrific interview in a really important two-parter, so you definitely want to check that out. If you're a fan of our other show, HTML, we are running a phenomenally cool holiday special, and I say that because it's fucking ridiculous, right? So we're doing Rap Battle, which for those of you unfamiliar, is the <laughs> freeform holiday competitive gift wrapping show, and we're doing it kind of like and then there were none. You really, really don't want to miss it. It also includes a special holiday theme song just for all of you out there. So do check that out. Of course, if you're checking stuff out, do check out HTML anyway. And check out our page, Husbands Talking More or Less on Facebook. Don't forget to check out the comics that we make as well, Kid Riot Comics, over at KidRiotComics.com. And myself on Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Okay, I have nothing left to pimp out. I have nothing left to what recommend. About, Everybody. What about we are co- we are Coca-Cola.com. <laughs> it's a website. Critics agree. You can type it. Is it Critics tight? also agree. It's on the internet. So until next week, we will see everybody. Bye. Bye. <laughs> oh. Okay, I have to pee so bad, everybody. I'm-